You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. It's management first, management second, management third, and then it goes from there. Good management can take a, a, a mediocre asset and make it work. Bad management can generally make a bad asset work, and bad management can screw up a good asset. So. That was always the first thing. Welcome back to Money Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers, and I have a treat for you today. A new guest, someone with many decades of experience in the mining sector that hasn't had a a full in-depth interview done um, before. And I brought him to you today because as I've grown as a resource investor, there's certain things that you need to learn. You need to learn what's the difference between a mineral exploration company, a developer, a producer, a royalty company. You start with those basic building blocks and then you go from there. And one of the ways I've grown is by talking to people with a variety of experience in the mining sector, since I myself don't come from the mining sector, came from outside Canada and outside the mining sector. And one of the ways that I've grown is by just having conversations with people with a lot of experience in the sector. And Brian Christie, welcome on to the show today. You have had a lot of experience in the sector. You've been a geologist, You've been a journalist. You've been a mining equity analyst. You've run IR for a major gold producer, and you're the director of Wallbridge Mining, as well as Fury, of which you're the chairman, Fury Gold Mines, which is a show sponsor. So welcome on to the show for the first time. Thanks, Bill. Good good to be here. All right. Could you give us a little background? How did you find your way into the mining sector? Uh, it's kind of interesting. When I was uh, graduating from high school, I actually thought I wanted to be a pharmacist. So I applied to pharmacy school, and in those days, uh, it was a very, very tough uh, faculty to get into. Uh, the Toronto, I lived in Toronto, and there was a, you know, they, they took a select number of people, and I didn't make the cut, and I ended up in a BSc program at the U of T, started taking geology, and as I got into it, I kind of found it a lot more interesting, and ultimately, I did my BSc at U of T, uh, when I graduated, I felt I didn't really have enough background in economic geology, so I applied for a master's, did my master's at Queen's, and then got into industry and spent about 13 years as uh, an exploration geologist. So you got in as a geologist and had, were you part of a discovery during that period of time? Um, I've worked for government. I've worked for large companies. I spent five years at Long State. Uh, Canada, for example, which was on by Homestake USA. The discoveries I've been on two in my career. Uh, one was with Falconbridge Copper. I was working as a, uh, I think I was crew chief that year. Uh, we were up at a project north of, uh, or just outside of Thunder Bay. It was called uh, Winston Lake. Uh, we had actually gone in, it's kind of an interesting story. We'd gone in to kill the project because it had been on Falconbridge's uh, list of properties for years. And I, I don't take credit for the discovery. The guy I worked for, uh, Frank Ballant, was the guy that put it all together. He recognized there was a potential for a volcanogenic massive sulfide system there. And so we went in, we started mapping, and we found a large alteration system. Um, we were going to drill four holes just to follow up a short program that had been done a couple of years earlier. Uh, first hole, it was kind of funny. Uh, the driller said, oh, I can't set up here. The cliff's in the way. So we said, okay, we'll back up. And so he, he's drilling the hole. And uh, the night before we went out to, to check the core, there was like 
probably a 50-year storm event, washed the road out in about six, seven places. Took us about three hours to get up to the site. And when we got there, we flipped open the core boxes and there was, I think there was about five meters of uh, massive sulfides. So pretty exciting discovery. Uh, that ultimately became a mine. Unfortunately, Falconbridge uh, mined it at the down part of the zinc cycle, didn't make any money. But nevertheless, it was pretty exciting. We learned a lot about volcanogenic massive sulfides, which certainly was beneficial at Ignico. Uh, the other discovery was a lot more grassroots. I was working for a consultant with a junior mining company. And uh, myself and another guy were out, just happened to be mapping, and he was sent stream sampling. And we're sitting, I'm on an outcrop, he's collecting a stream. And he goes, wow, he says, this, this is pretty interesting. This sample's full of pyrite. And I went, what? That's kind of weird. So I, I was sampling an outcrop, bagged that. We took his sample, and it turned out that we were sitting right on top of what became the Pine Cove deposit in Newfoundland. So uh, I did the original grassroots work, flagged it as this is an area that has to, you know, we got to come back here and do a lot more work. And as I said, we were sitting right on top of, it was about a 300,000-ounce deposit gold and uh, got mined out by a, a junior company in uh, Newfoundland. Brian, you kind of referenced how brutal the mining cycle can be. In, in the first discovery you referenced, that you can actually have success geologically, but that may not translate into value on a per share basis for investors. Maybe for can sure. you share a little bit more about the cycles of mining and what investors need to look for? You know, the, the trouble with a lot of investors is they tend to buy higher up in the cycle as opposed to, you know, watch where the commodity prices are and watch where the companies are as far as share price. And I always tell people that, you know, look, after you've been doing some due diligence and watching these things, just make sure if you're investing in a company, there's no fatal flaws that you see. So if everything's good with the company and it happens to be a downtime in the, the price of metals, then that's okay because then the timing often relates to when the metal price moves. And I think right now we're in an interesting time for gold that, you know, it's it's been kind of stuck here. The gold price is 1900 to 1975, which is a great price. Uh, but to get it, I think, really moving, we're going to probably have to move well over 2000, probably 2100. But that may not happen until the Fed stops uh, raising interest rates, which, you know, depending on what week it is, they're going to raise them, they're not going to raise them. So I think now's a good time to be looking at the sector. A lot of the juniors are kind of undervalued. And I think we'll see another uptick in the gold cycle. And gold's a little more difficult because it's got different controls on what moves the price. But copper, for example, uh, or even uranium, they tend to be more cyclical. And you know, the idea here is if you build a big mine, you want to catch a couple of metal price cycles. So, it, it, And I think another thing people fail to do is, you know, when stocks kind of really reach a peak and you're at a high point in the, the metal price cycle, people fail to take money off the table, which is always, and you know, a funny story, uh, Agnico, a couple of years ago, we kept hitting historic all-time highs. And my wife said to me, she goes, who's buying the stock at these historic all-time highs? <laughs> so, And what was and your answer as head of IR? <laughs> well, I, I actually had a, it was funny, I had a few retail investors call, call me and they're usually guys out of the U.S., older guys, retired, have held the stock for years, 
And one guy was really funny. And I said to him, yeah, I said, you know, look, this is a cyclical business. Stock's moving up. Take some money off the table. And when it pulls back, you buy back in. And it was funny because he did exactly what he, I suggested. And he, he'd call me up and go, that was great advice. He says, it's perfect. And now I'm looking at, you know, how I manage my investments like that. So so when you were head of IR for Agnico Eagle, obviously you're dealing with investor expectations as you're talking to investors all the time. And do you feel like a lot of the gold producers, when we're at a cyclical top, it's hard not to cave into investor expectations because that's what they're expecting of you. Would you agree with that or how would you manage that? Yeah, well, you bring up a good point because uh, in this kind of last two or three years, the focus has been on cash flow and a lot of the investors, uh, some of them want dividends, some of them want you to pay down debt, some of them want you to do share buybacks. So it's kind of interesting because as a gold company, you're a price taker. You, you you don't control the price. So you have to you know kind of manage your costs and deal with the price that you've got and then make your capital decisions based on your cash flow generation. So it's always tough, uh, you know, as I said, dividends, uh, investing in new projects, paying down debt. So you, you got to kind of do a balance here when, when, when you're lo- looking at it. In the last gold cycle, many uh, gold producer executives made some poor decisions for which they lost their jobs. And uh, when I've asked Rick Rule about this, you know, the, the famous investor in the resource sector, yep. he says... It's going to happen again because human nature repeats itself. Uh, what is your opinion? Do you think a lot of executives in this gold up cycle are going to make some of the same mistakes? We've seen quite a bit of discipline so far, but I get nervous that uh, there's consolidation happening and there aren't what I'd say a lot of good projects out there. So at some point, I think some guys are going to probably pay too much for an acquisition, make the wrong acquisition. Uh, maybe get caught offside politically because uh, the world is constantly changing here. I think you know a lot of the places you want to invest in are shrinking dramatically, and you know that's one of the things that attracts me to Fury is that we're in Canada, predominantly Quebec, which is probably one of the best jurisdictions you know you, you could be in. So I think there's going to be some chance, but uh, to me, this all comes down to pick your management team. If, if they've got a great track record, like Agnico, Sean Boyd, uh, tremendous track record, uh, transparent, uh, focused on investors and investor outreach, Sean totally understood, uh, you know, reaching out to uh, institutional investors, retail investors. Uh, so the company had a lot of uh, credibility in the marketplace. And even when something goes wrong, the investors trust you and believe that you're going to get out of a situation like say uh, you know mine has a certain issue well you explain hey this is going to take three or four months to fix and you know you got you got the credibility that they trust you so i would say always it's management first management second management third and then it goes from there ryan i've been investing in small canadian uh, junior mining stocks since late 2015 as an american And I can tell you that over that eight years, it's become more difficult to invest in Canadian junior miners, especially as an accredited investor and a lot of the hoops and hassles we have to go through. How important is the U.S. investor to the Canadian junior mining markets? Uh, I think it's critical to the entire Canadian market. I can tell you, Agnico 
we've always focused on uh, the U.S. market. We probably have about 30 or 40% retail. And so it's always been a big component. When Paul Penner ran the company, you'd go to the annual meeting and you'd have two or three rows of shareholders, largely from the U.S. So I think when you look at generalist money, there's it's mostly in the United States. That's where the big pools of capital are. Uh, we're not seeing, I just don't get a good feeling. The Canadian institutional market is shrinking. Uh, I think there's a demographic change in some of the retail investors. Uh, but that said, I was glad to read a Kitco article that said millennials apparently have 10% gold in their portfolios. That didn't necessarily mean stocks, but at least they know, know what gold actually is compared to probably Bitcoin. So uh, I think it's very important to reach out to U.S. investors. And I, I understand where you're coming from. Like I, I know myself, with, even if I want to do, say, a private placement or something, I have to fill out all kinds of paperwork and then it gets even worse. As an insider, if I'm buying stock, I got to make sure all the filings are done. And yeah, total, totally understand where you're coming from. And a lot of it... I guess they're just trying to prevent, uh, you know, issues. So, Down Brian, after you worked as a geologist early in your career, you then had a stint as a journalist um, in the mining sector. So, what were some of your key takeaways for investors? Uh, what did you learn there as a journalist? Uh, it was interesting, Bill, because at that point in time when I joined the Northern Miner, I'll give them a plug here, because if, if you're a resource investor, that's a great uh paper to be subscribed to. The news, when you get it, the news is probably a bit old, but it gives you great insight looking at site visits and just the stories. And when I joined the diamond market, uh, Canada and international just started to take off. We made the big discoveries in Northwest Territories. And then Canadians were starting to go globally where they were looking at projects. So I was traveling all over the world looking at, uh, you name it, I was probably there looking at uranium or copper, gold, diamonds. And uh, I, th I think uh, the big issue here is, uh, again, trust the management, do some due diligence on the projects, and everything in jurisdictions is great until it's not. So I think pay a lot of attention to where the companies are. You know, there's, there's hot spots in the world right now. A lot of West Africa is starting to kind of wobble. Uh, you know, obviously, Russia, Kinross had to exit Russia back a few years ago when the, the Ukraine situation came around. So I think a lot of it is know your management teams and pick decent geography. After you were a journalist, then you worked as a mining equity analyst for, I think, almost two decades, right? Yeah, it was about 17 years, and Seven. it was funny because that job I got uh, involved in uh, uh, the mining analyst uh, career, and it was a connection I made on a Northern Miner site visit. I joined Canaccord Capital uh, back when they were just really building their Toronto uh, institutional team and uh, went on to work at several different uh, Canadian uh, equity dealers. So when you were at the, uh, your desk and on paper you're analyzing a miner, what were some of the key metrics you would look for? Um, again, it would always be uh, management. Good management can take a, a, a mediocre asset and make it work. Bad management can generally make a bad asset work, and bad management can screw up a good asset. 
So that was always the first thing. And then again, uh, good geology with the ability to grow reserves, resources. Uh, also another thing that, well, it wasn't so much back in the days when I was a, a mining analyst, but it's community engagement. You got to make sure the companies are engaged with the local communities, uh, First Nations groups. All of that is very, very important because you can have a great project and it gets stalled out because you've done a very bad job dealing with uh, local communities, local government, whatever. So beyond just a superficial um, due diligence when it comes to local communities, if the company says everything's fine, but then you get a news clipping or something that there's some dissatisfaction at the First Nations level, as an investor or an equity analyst, uh, what would you do? Would you pick up the phone or would you do a site visit, yep. try to talk to the locals? Yeah, as an equity investor, before I would cover any kind of company, I would go to site. So as part of my due diligence, I always made sure I went to site. And that usually meant meeting some of the local communities, uh, meeting government officials, and just totally understanding kind of the landscape. And, uh, and these days, a lot of this stuff you can screen uh you know, on, on the web sort of thing. Right. But as an investor, if I see something that's happening, uh, from say a political or community level, I would be phoning the company and saying, Hey, what's going on here. Right. Like, you know, I read your stuff about ESG on your website and it all looks great, but you know, I'm not getting the warm, fuzzy feeling, uh, from, you know, what I'm, what I'm seeing in, uh, stories on the internet, but also you have to be careful with what's on the internet because it often isn't the exact case of what is happening. So pick up the phone, call the CEO. You know, if it's a decent company, you're going to be able to get the CEO on the phone. When you were at um, Agnico Eco leading investor relations, from your vantage point, what did you feel like investors misperceived or got wrong the most? Probably the timing in the cycle. As I said, they often tend to buy when prices are ramping and that's often difficult because you never know when the price is going to roll over uh i also think now uh there's too much short-term focus on you know earnings quarterly earnings a lot of that is generated by the hedge fund community because those guys have become some of the dominant institutional investors with a lot of the big brokerages whether it's in the united states or canada there's kind of a a list of maybe about 80 of them and they're the guys that are doing the trading they're the guys that are shorting going long and everything's this short-term focus and i i think as an investor you need to take a longer term focus like a company every so often on a quarter is going to miss earnings but if they miss earnings by a penny is, is that a big deal no because then the next quarter they're going to beat by two or three cents so that kind of thing you kind of got to that's kind of noise, you know, as I said, always look to see if there's a fatal flaw somewhere, then that's a different story. But, you know, you can't really focus on the short-term trading and you probably have some clients that do short-term trade. Uh, but I, again, as I would say, if a stock, if you buy it in the, the right time at the right point when it's not, you know, running up to the moon, then I think you've got the ability to trade, take some money and you don't just uh, be smart about it. I've heard it said that institutions offer a stock stability, but retail offers a stock liquidity. Uh, do you think that's an accurate statement? I'd say some of the retail investors are very loyal. And so 
Yeah, that's that's probably true. I think the hedge fund guys probably offer some liquidity too. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's that's probably valid. But you know, at Agnico, we've had some very long-term retail investors. Brian, you could be doing anything at this point in your career, but you've chosen to be the chairman of Fury. You accepted that role uh, more recently. Uh, what's your vision for the company and why did you accept the role? I've known Tim for probably over 20 years. Uh, you know, we've been fly fishing, trap shooting, uh, golfing. Uh, he was a great partner when I was in the capital markets business as an analyst. Uh, he got me in front of key investors, uh, worked hard. Uh, it's interesting because he had built a good relationship with Agnico before I even got there. And I like Tim because he's got a ton of energy. He's always thinking, he's thinking more like he's running a business, not just a resource business. And he's also focused on making sure there's good culture with the executive team, with the board, and everybody interacts well. So I like the transparency there, uh, how he's thinking, because uh, we'll chat about ideas and you know what could look like a great idea, maybe two days later it isn't, but you move on to the next thing. And I think you always have to be almost reassessing your business uh, and seeing where you're going and how you want to grow. And Tim, as I said, has a lot of energy, uh, great relationships uh, out there with a number of companies and a, a lot of the institutional investors. I think he's learning a lot about retail, but th that's good as well. And what about at the project level with Fury? Obviously, that's central to the company's investment thesis. Yeah, we were just up at Eau Claire, uh, month ago roughly and uh i was blown away by the infrastructure like uh the quebec hydro uh infrastructure you know we landed uh, on a an airstrip where you can land probably a 737 because it's for the you know this is the james bay power projects uh got in a truck we could have got in a car and we drove all the way to the property got there uh and uh the amount of trenching and historical work that was done by East Main Resources that I don't think really necessarily got all put together that well. So I was just blown away with the access, the amount of data. There's lots of trenches, there's sampling, uh, you know, there's some areas almost football size, football field size outcrops have been stripped. So when you're drilling a lot of these things, you can look at the surface geology and say, okay, now I know what's happening and where I'm going to chase it. And, uh, I think it's it's a tremendous property. We have a known resource at Eau Claire. We can build on that. But I think the really exciting thing is the number of targets elsewhere on the property that need to be uh, assessed, drilled. And you know we've had great luck at Percival, and uh, we've got a bunch of other targets on the on the project. And it's just a matter of systematically exploring. Great technical team. That was another thing that you know I, I met the guys. David Rivard and Brian Atkinson, solid guys. Margo on uh, IR and uh, our, our CFO, he's, uh, he's just stepped in. He was the uh, controller, but uh, I think he's going to be a great CFO. So I think it's a great team, uh, great location. As I said, you can't beat Quebec. And I kind of like when I can drive my car to a project, I don't have to worry about uh, building a road for 200 kilometers or, you know, flying everything in by uh, Hercules or stuff like that. So, if it, and the thing with uh, Eau Claire, you can almost plug and play into the hydro. So it's you know, in this day and age when you want 
good, reliable power that's green, great place to be. And then, you know, we've also got the uh, joint venture with Newmont, uh, that their project Eleanor. And so, again, it's right by a producing mine. Pretty good place to find more mineralization in the shadow of the head frame. So, Excellent. Well, uh, Brian, thank you for coming on the show today, sharing your insights and sharing a little bit about your story. I appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Bill. Good to be here. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.